Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the associate producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre. And today I'm joined by the astonishing Ryan Barakovich, one of our co-artistic producers. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Jill. How are you? I'm doing well myself. Thank you. Today, Ryan and I have the pleasure of reviewing Riot King's production of Suddenly Last Summer. This is a Tennessee Williams play, and this production is directed by Kathleen Welch, and it's happening here in Toronto, August 9th to the 13th at Sorry Studios. So yeah, so that's what we're going to be unpacking, kind of venturing into the gardens of New Orleans. But before we dive right into the South, Ryan, what is in your cup today? So I just have coffee in my cup, but I selected my sad Ibsen cup because one, because Ibsen was such a profound influence on Tennessee Williams as he was cultivating his playwriting craft. And two, because when we were on our way home from this production, you said that you saw so many connections between Mrs. Alving from Ghosts, whom you played, and and Violet from this production that you were so enthralled you wanted to write an essay about it. So Godspeed and do so. I did say that on our journey home. I'm a nerd. Great. I love that. What's in your cup? In my cup. Also, I do want to pay respects to our foliage, our flower garden garb we have going on here right now. And also also kind of tropical vacation meets, you know, overgrown garden. Like, yes, for those just listening in podcast form, you have no idea what we're talking about, but we are just describing our outfits. Yes. I think my bangles even have like, flowers and weeds. Well, there you go. You came prepared. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I am also drinking coffee. I've got a bit of a, I believe, caffeine deficient headache. So I'm sipping coffee out of the University of Toronto mug because Lindsay Middleton, who plays Kathy in this production, is a theater and drama studies alumni like myself, Sheridan College and University of Toronto's theater program there. So I thought I'd represent the alum club with my mug tonight. And I've also got some water because hydration is key in the middle of this August present summer. Mm -hmm. So suddenly last summer, Ryan, why don't you take our listeners and viewers through your synopsis thing? Okay. Suddenly this summer, I will describe suddenly last summer. Okay. So this is, it's a Tennessee Williams play for those who've never heard of it or unfamiliar with it. It's so just very briefly and non-spoilery and we'll get more into the details after a spoiler shield goes up later. But our central characters consist of Violet Venable, who she's the first person we really meet. And she is the mother of a young, well, middle-aged, I suppose, poet named Sebastian who passed away last summer under mysterious circumstances. And we don't find out precisely what happened to Sebastian until pretty much the very end of the play. But she's very distraught at what happened. And she believes that her niece, Sebastian's cousin, Catherine or Kathy, is very much responsible for what happened because she was away with him on a bit of a holiday when he met his tragic end. And she has been locked up in various facilities for people with mental illnesses. You know, they had a lot less, more colorful language for those at the time. Um, This is also set in the 30s in New Orleans. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but so we're really dealing with the Southern Gothic style that characterizes so much of Tennessee Williams's work. 
And yeah, she believes that not only is Catherine to blame, but she's also been spreading horrible lies about what the nature of what happened, about the truth of Sebastian's identity, and she wants to really clamp down on that. Mm-hmm. So she's brought a doctor who experiments with all kinds of things to deal with people with mental illnesses, lobotomies being a big part of what this practice might require if things don't go the way they want them to, but or if they do in Violet's case. But more potently, he's the doctor has brought this truth serum type injection that will be administered to Catherine, and she will therefore have no choice but to tell the truth of what happened. So I guess without spoilers, I might want to stop our little synopsis there. This is a pretty old play, so maybe a lot of you have read it before, maybe seen it before. There was a pretty famous movie in the 50s of it starring Elizabeth Taylor and Catherine Hepburn. But this is kind of considered more of the back catalog of Tennessee Williams. So there's a good chance that, you know, Streetcar, you know, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, you know, Glass Menagerie, maybe you don't know this one. And this would be a great opportunity for people in Toronto to check it out. Yes. Yeah. I'm quite fond of it, but here, what are your thoughts? General impressions? Yeah, I had never read this one. Like, this is one that I'd never encountered in, like, a scene study or knew. I mean, obviously knew it existed as a Tennessee Williams, but yeah, I just had never stumbled upon it, even in, like, a playbook club or anything. So I went in with fresh eyes and a fresh vibe, because I remember I said to you, Ryan, I was like, should I read a synopsis or, like, should I read it? It is a smaller of his plays. And... I was, and, and then I, I was like, no, just go well, into it. I specifically told you that if you are lucky enough to go into this not knowing what happens, do yourself the favor and yeah. <laughs> just allow yourself to go in unaware. Because I do think, like, I, I read this one for the first time. I've never seen it performed before, but I read it when I was in high school. I got really into Tennessee Williams when I did a scene study in my high school drama class from The Glass Menagerie. Yeah, there there were not a lot of plays in my university, not university, high school. Yeah, (laughs) high school feels so long ago. But in my high school (laughs) library, they had like maybe five plays that weren't written by Shakespeare and like, you know, shorter works by Tennessee Williams was among them. So yeah, I kind of binged as much as that library would allow me to binge. And this was one that really left a big impression on me. So I was very happy to see that they were doing it. Yes. So I'm very grateful that I didn't read it in advance because I was very kind of as to like what happened i will say like i kind of had an inkling as to like where the plot was going and who these people were but it was very much like unlike other tennessee williams's works and we actually chatted with some of the actors in the lobby post the show and how they were remarking too like it's it's one of his more like poetic pieces. Mm-hmm. And I was sharing with Ryan too. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a Tennessee Williams production. Actually, you know, that is a lie. I did see, I have seen Tennessee Williams productions a long time ago, but aside from like scene studies, like it's been a while since I've like seen his text electrified on stage. And with this piece is very poetic, which is lovely too, because it speaks into Sebastian one of the characters that's spoken about, he's poet. So like, that's a really lovely kind of meta flavor for the piece. Okay. Before we get into spoiler zone, I think you've already said it, Ryan, but absolutely. I think folks, if they have the time, if the show is only running until August 13th, so it's a bit of a shorter run, but if you don't have any plans this weekend, go out and see this show because it is 
phenomenal. The cast is brilliant. The use of space. Sorry, Studios is like this cute little, like their lobby. I was telling Ryan reminds me of like kind of like a 1970s living room vibe. And then you walk into the back face, the play space, and you walk kind of by a little kitchenette and like it's set up like you're on this like Louisiana veranda and there's like a garden or a conservatory in the back. Like it's very beautifully set dressed and the performances were amazing. And we'll get more into those. Yeah. And we'll get more into more ambiance things. Ryan, do you have anything kind of general to glaze over before Um, we jump in? The cast is very strong. We will obviously unpack this more post-spoiler, but Lindsay Middleton, who, you know, of course, we've mentioned before she's been interviewed on this show, friend of ours, gives a phenomenal performance in a very central role that we will unpack the nuances of, but I felt like that should be stated for the people who will stop at the spoiler shield. And of course, the rest of the cast gives very strong performances as as well, but Lindsay deserves all all of the praises for what she's done here. Snap, snap, snaps. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think at this point, a little Blue Jay is going to fly on in and give us our spoiler alert. And funny thing is, you don't know why the spoiler alert might be a Blue Jay unless you enter the spoiler zone. And we are in the garden. We are on the beach. We are with the birds and the turtles. There are carnivorous plants, there are carnivorous birds, there are carnivorous people. Everything in this play is carnivorous. Yes. Uh, yes, with spoilers, um, we can talk about all of it. Yes. Uh, Let's start with Lindsay. Just you yes, mentioned sure. Lindsay um, on the Blue Jay Tales of you mm-hmm. mentioning Lindsay. But an absolutely breathtaking performance. I was saying to Ryan on the drive home, I was like, that performance of Catherine Holly was perfection. Like, just Lindsay is brilliant. And I know I'm friends with her and like, I might be a bit biased, but like, no, like, like she is a phenomenal performer and an amazing person. I love you, Lindsay. I love you so much. Just the, the physicality, the emotionality, the mental prowess and tenacity that this character requires is astonishing. Like, she, the minute she's on stage, she doesn't stop. And she was actually like sharing that with us in the lobby. Like she is a roller coaster of emotion, explosion. And just, I was transformed and transfixed by the grotesque stories that she maps out in these monologues. And like the pacing was brilliant. Like I said, the physicality and the ticks that she kind of peppered into her Catherine was amazing. Like, There wasn't for a second, I wasn't questioning like any of the choices or journeys that she was taking this very naive preyed upon character, the toying with sensuality and sexuality and then stoic stoicism and like shock and trauma. Like it was, I felt like I was watching kind of like, like a kaleidoscope of womanhood, of young womanhood in her yeah, in her performance, like the being trapped in the male gaze, being trapped in memories that you don't want to be yours, but are placed upon you. And like every type of character like this, like in Ibsen, in 
Tennessee Williams in Chekhov. Like it, it's all of these women that are written at this time period, like have this, right? They are literally like a caged bird and there's no escaping. They just have to trudge through. And I just think Middleton kicked it out of the park and then some. There was like, yeah, like the, and having chatted with Lindsay in the lobby too, of, of her expressing at the end, you know, there's a big like journey and pages and pages worth of tech that she goes on and getting to hear a little bit of behind the curtain of the process. She was saying that she actually has free reign to kind of take that text on an improvised to a sense like journey. Like she, you know, she carries the text. The text will always be the same, but she's like, yeah, like I, I have points that I go to and, but at everyone on stage is open and ready to to receive if I give them an offer of the text. And I'm like, that's such a lovely, like props to Welch, our director for allowing Lindsay to have that freedom contained in, in that space and in that text. I, I love hearing that because I'm like, that just means director and actor are on the same page. And there's so much trust there that like Lindsay can explode and do her job to the best of her ability because her director trusts that she can and she will. You know, um, yeah, that's, I'll just lob Lindsay over to you and well, then we can pivot. I, I agree with everything you've said. I don't know how much more yeah. there is to add. Like she was, yeah, it, roller coaster is a word you use. And I think that's a very apt way of describing the ups and the downs. The She's so tightly wound, but just ready to explode at the seams and that whole you know, act four, as it's called, which is like half of the show is her basically with the, the this truth serum flowing through her veins, just letting it all out. And, you know, she's been traumatized both by what she's witnessed and then what she's gone through after being in the various asylum-like facilities and mm-hmm. having to now perform, literally perform this monologue for these people who either are on varying degrees of tolerating you because we need you to outright vindictively hating you like like this is yeah it is a a tour de force performance there's no other way to describe it and yeah once again just hats off shout out all of the praise must be heaped on her absolutely i just want to run through the cast list to mention Mm -hmm. everyone else because like you said too like an extremely strong cast supporting you you know viola venable Violet Venable also has big, large chunks of text. And these characters like Kathy and Violet, where it's like the actor kind of has to go into this like imaginative world, like very visceral and like, like it's almost like they're going into like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like a fairy world or something. And like all the other characters have to, stay on the ground, stay in reality of what's going on, but also devote all of their attention to this character for us, the audience, to not veer away from what they're talking about. Yeah, I want to shout out the cast because I think these folks like held the space, supported each other brilliantly along the backdrop of Kathleen Welch's direction. So we had Elaine Lindo playing Violet Venable, Ryan Awanicki playing Dr. Sugar, Carling Tedesco playing Mrs. Holly, Brendan Kinnan playing George Holly, Jobina Sato playing Sister Felicity, and Shadden Rabari playing Miss Foxhill. And any of those folks I just listed, if I mispronounce your names, apologies on my end. 
But yeah, super strong, supportive Kismet cast in such a small space. Like it would be very easy, I think, for too much caricature from different like focal points to bleed, accidentally bleed into that such a small space that Sorry Studios is. And I felt like everyone shared it quite well. You know what I mean? Um, so that, yeah, like driving the very poetic plot was successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like on the subject of the cast, like, I don't know if there's other like individual shout outs you want to give. I know we've heaped praises onto Lindsay. I would just say like one one person who I think deserves a shout out was, what was her name? Sorry, I have the program here. Uh, Shadden. Uh, Shadden Mabari, who played yeah, Miss Foxo. Miss Fox Hill, I just thought she was such a fun presence. Like that she had yeah. this very like boxed in kind of like little step walk, super high pitched voice that to me was like an interesting mix of she brought levity to the scenes every time she came in. But the more you think about her character, the more you realize, well, why are you like this? Why do you seem so tightly wound in this way? And I think because of just how we see how horrible this family is and the dysfunction and everything like, oh, this is somebody like a servant in the house who's probably been heaped so much abuse on her very in kind that like she comes by this terrified demeanor so honestly that Mm -hmm. it recontextualizes the laughter that like we just as a reflex will bring to every time she comes on stage with her funny demeanor yeah but yeah i think there was definitely like a lot of nuance and pathos in what could have otherwise been a very funny performance without losing the fact that it was indeed very funny yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And on her or anyone else or yeah. Yeah. Like even like her gestures and her eyes, like I, I think I've shared this fact with you. I don't know if I've shared it on the cut, but an indication of trauma in individuals, this is like from like a biological, psychological point of view, widened eyes, like someone who has very is always has alert looking eyes can indicate that they are someone who came from a traumatic experience or like has trauma. And that like Absolutely. Fox Hill throughout the whole yeah. piece big was like very eyes. big buggy yes. eyes. And I wanted to be like, what is going on behind that? Those lids, you know? And that's or like, the thing. It's never stated, but you can yeah. just by meeting Violet, things we hear about Sebastian, just understanding this household, we get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unfortunate that we get it, but I think, yeah, the, it's all in the face and the voice and the posture that like she, she sold it so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also want to shout out Elaine Lindo, who played mm-hmm. Violet Venable. I just think, again, her, like, grace and, like, gentleness in her physicality. But then, like, as the piece goes on, like, you start seeing, like, the glisten in her eyes start becoming more maniacal. Like, there's a conniving and a monster was kind of bubbling inside her. And I just thought it it was a wonderful, just following that character's arc. It was like a wonderful contrast of this, like sweet. I think you had said it on our journey home, like washed up Southern bell or like, like an older Southern bell who is like, like she had very gentle gestures and was kind of cutesy. And then as the story unfolds, as the truth comes out, you it's like she got more rigid and hard and 
yeah, and like looks like she kind of she had the like kind of remind me of like a character of Clue, where like like <laughs> Mrs. Peacock. Look, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the look of like I know things. Do you don't know? That's such a silly way of describing that. But I just thought I definitely yeah. wanted to shout out her. No, I, I would agree, and like I think what's interesting about her that yeah, like as you point out, this Southern Belle past her prime is she had this like interesting unconventional charm which i think is interesting because she was very slow as molasses like mm-hmm. on one hand i think she like as the character recognizes that i'm not hotsy totsy anymore in fact a lot of the plot hinges on the fact that she we're past spoilers we can talk about this that yeah. you know her son used to bring her along with him on his adventures to be sexy next to him and lure all the boys in so he could have queer relations with those same boys Mm -hmm. but you know spoilers we're past the blue jay um (laughs) but then the the fact that you know she's wounded by you know not being you know that able to fill that role for him because she's no longer in that demographic that will be enticing and that's why he brought his cousin catherine instead in this journey and something else that i think i also want to mention about the performance is that she we learn about like two thirds of the way through the plot that she's had a stroke. And that was also part of why she wasn't able to travel. She insists that it was an aneurysm, but everyone else seems to be in agreement that it's a stroke. And yeah. when we learn that about her, it also it's another one of these things that recontextualizes that, oh, why were you a little so slow, maybe dulled in your reactions to things that, okay, you are, you've made yeah. a remarkable recovery, but it's very clearly still there. Right. And I've been think I've been thinking about her performance because like knowing that this wounded ego that she has that of course she's mourning her son and that's tragic and weighing on her a lot but I kind of felt like maybe if there's one little note for her performance then I know it's like too late to change anything now the ship's rolling but I might have liked to see more of her being flirty with the doctor mm. because we have this long extended sequence of them like in the whole first act of the show and there's like little moments there parts where the text really does demand it, but I would have liked to see her really trying to seduce him, for lack of a better mm. word, like to prove to herself that she still got it when she knows that Sebastian didn't believe that she had it anymore. And right. yeah, but then remembering that she has had the stroke that may, and she's of course in mourning that it makes sense that she's not going to be playing that game. Yeah, but when right. I think of, you know, these Tennessee Williams matriarch characters like Amanda Wingfield from The Glass Menagerie and even to a lesser extent Blanche Dubois from The Streetcar Named Desire. I do kind of, I don't think that Southern Belle flirtiness ever dies even no, if yeah. there's other They still walk the walk, talk the talk, yeah. even though they're dried, they might be yeah. dried up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just like one thought about her performance, but otherwise like I thought she did a really good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I concur with all of that. I want to talk about costuming mm-hmm. because that's something that's been it popped out to me during the show, but absolutely been kind of, I'm unbuttoning costume moments in my brain. So like the costuming was fantastic. And like, I'll kind of like just say why my brain's thinking this, but like the character of Violet comes in wearing this, like, you know, your classic, like 1930s, like pleated pattern dress, but it's like, has violet colored flowers on it, but amidst like a gray background And it's like modest, but it's stunning. And then you have Catherine coming in, Lindsay's costume, which is kind of shaped the exact same as Violet's, 
but it has like bright, like blue flowers with like a little bit of white in there. And she has like a white blazer on top. So like this more like really contrasting, this like angelic, youthful woman that Violet absolutely would be more envious of. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also you find as the Blue Jay notebook gets mentioned, I'm like, oh, and she's wearing blue. And then again, I'm going on this like journey of, we have Miss Foxhill, who's kind of in like a robin's egg mm-hmm. blue. And like a nurse outfit. So, yeah. yeah, but like definitely I remember being like, oh, wow, that's a really lovely robin's egg blue colored dress. And then as now we've seen the show, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's really interesting of like talking about bird imagery, all that vibe. Blue jays are literally known to steal robin's eggs. Like that's like their main prey. And uh, amongst other birds, but like, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid learning that specifically being like, those are such pretty eggs. How could that ever happen? Blue jays are so cute. Like, what the heck? <laughs> but like that, and then what you just brought up about Fox Hill of mm-hmm. maybe being like in these, in the presence of these blue jay carnivorous birds that are Sebastian and potentially Violet and even maybe even Catherine, like, and mm-hmm. how she's kind of just gobsmacked and just has to sit there in the nest like she's defenseless you know and if i could sorry you know finish your thought please and then just the one before i even get to the the male characters the mrs holly played by carling tedesco her outfit being like this light green like she was like of all of the women like kind of i got the impression like the most outside of the like potential trauma circle that Sebastian has sucked these women into, but like she's hungry for status and money. And she kind of represents the like outside world to this like very microscopic story that's happening. And she, so like, I also have like, like to me green, I think of like envy, right. And jealousy and how you can tell like the minute she's on stage, like against Violet, she it's, really itching at her that like her well-being and the well-being of her children rests upon this other woman who like maybe is about the same class or you know um well they're definitely not the same class which i think is interesting right but like the same age age tier ish not Mm -hmm. really but like just like she's mrs holly is in that in-between moment right she's not like a dame of society and she's not this young southern belle anymore she basically is a mother like that's her female title right now but and she doesn't have the money that the venables had yeah exactly right and like and she's in my mind she's cosplaying as someone of this class of her big comical fan (laughs) that she kind of the outfit that she's wearing but like they're broke they don't have the money that yeah they can't afford to just hop all over the world and uh, you know buy rare fruit flies to feed a venus fly and it's it's almost like now where i'm paying to it's almost like she's all talk it's almost like she's like a parrot or like a cockatoo Mm -hmm, like that would be the bird i would attribute to her right she's all talk and wants to talk things out and anyways this is like a very fresh unpacking of my brain of like no, all great. of the women were just as birds. But yeah, sorry, you were going to add. Oh, it was just such a silly minor thing. But while you, since you brought up the Robin's egg costume, like I think it's so interesting because one of the most striking, one of the many striking images I'll say in this is the description of 
in the Galapagos Islands, scary birds swooping down on the baby sea turtles just as they hatch out of their eggs and need to retreat to the beach before they, you know, get torn to shreds. And like, I don't know if this is kind of half-baked, but it's just responding to you pointing out the egg hues that both eggs and birds being so central to that image that like she's almost you know, synthesizing the two. I don't know. It's a very half-baked No, yeah, and all the men were dressed in, like, Mm egg-colored, shell-colored colors as well. there's something there if you want to play with it. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. I guess one last costume that I I feel like, or there's a few more we could, we are kind of, we want to get this out quickly, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we don't want to necessarily go too long, but I I loved Dr. Sugar's... very ill-fitting suspenders mm-hmm. like he had these like leather straps that don't quite fit him right they're not really yeah you know, every time he sits down you get these like huge bubble of them and yeah he's out of his depths he's trying to wear his big boy pants but he you know yeah. he's hiding insecurities too he needs the funding for his research so he's doing these questionable tasks and i feel like what a what a fun visual of just like yeah, his suspenders do not fit yeah him. i didn't even think of that but that's yeah. a wonderful added at mm-hmm. element. Yeah. I want to talk about the ambiance a little yes, bit please. before. Yes. As Brian was saying, we do want to get this out soon enough for folks to hear our episode and also see the show. So we will wrap up quite soon, but the ambiance. So again, this piece is happening at Sorry Studios, which Ryan and I have never been to before. I guess, yeah, it is a studio space and people practice, rehearse art there and yeah, and put on shows. And I kind of mentioned it already, I think prior to spoiler, but it's lovely. The minute we walked in, like like I had said, like the lobby is kind of mapped out as this kind of 70s living room feel. Like all of the chair options are kind of like straight from like 70s office kind of vibe. But what's really great is Riot King is it's super important for them to highlight artists and other artists' work. So on display in the lobby are wonderful like tote bags, homemade earrings, portraits, paint, not portraits, paintings, and all in sort of the realm of foliage and plants and, and gardening. Yeah, gardening. Yeah, yeah. So general, it's general flora. Yes, yeah. exactly. General flora at so yeah, so you had the opportunity to peruse that and support local artists' work by purchasing some, yeah, some gifts prior to or after the show. And then I loved the bathroom. I actually chatted with Brendan, who played played our George Holly and also was producer on the show. I was like, that bathroom is amazing and so on point. It's great. It's the bathroom just happens to have like leaf wallpaper and like this green fluorescent light that you go into the washroom and you're like oh my gosh I feel like I'm inside of a greenhouse or like a (laughs) you know I'm gonna I'm gonna place a wager now that we will be the only people to review the bathroom of this production (laughs) I love it I'm like this just adds so much and then like I said you walk once the house opened we walked through like a little kitchenette space that just exists in sorry studios and I loved it because it felt like we were kind of walking into the residence into the venable residence and then yeah the space was mapped out all of the scenes happened in the same area and so there was like a little like veranda coffee table with two chairs and then there was like a sidebar with a little like alcohol canister with some glasses, if you may. There was like cigarette, just like a lot of 
period specific set dressing, obviously, that filled the space beautifully. And then there was like vines and plants also amidst all of this furniture, which really allowed all of that to come to life. And then they actually utilized the back part of Sorry Studios, which leads you into this little garden, this little like, yeah, this patch, small rectangular patch of land that exists behind some houses in Toronto. If everyone knows kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, I just want to clarify that when you say leads you into the audience stays stationary. In yes. Seat. Yeah. I, I know we've reviewed some shows recently where you do get up and walk True. around more immersive. Yes. But what I do think is really great about this like big window being the back wall of the stage that so you can see what's happening there and actors make their entrances and exits from the literal outdoors. Mm-hmm. And it just, the overgrowthness of the garden is this very striking motif that Sebastian died last summer, so almost a year ago, and hasn't been maintaining it. So it's become yep. nature that was trying to be contained is now overgrowing. So having direct access to the outside world really shows the extension of that, that characters can never really leave this space. They're being smothered by it. And the fact that we had natural light that by performing this in the summer, they, you know, they had some accent lights. There was like a striking red light that was also there too, especially during moments where they really talk about the blood and Mm -hmm. gore and viciousness of things that happen here, of which we barely even spoiled, even though we- I know, yeah. But yeah, the, the fact that we had natural light, like, you know, earlier this summer, you and I went to the Globe Theatre in London, and we got to see a show the way Shakespeare's audience would have with the, you know, open air natural light, and it becomes dusk as the show goes on. And I really mm-hmm. felt like we had a similar experience here as the story gets darker and darker, yeah. the sun is going down along with it. So yeah, definitely. Chef's yeah, kiss. kudos. Great. Is there anything you want to add, Ryan, before we... <sighs> Like, I just, as a closing thought, I guess just, yeah, this truly is one of Tennessee Williams' most beautifully written plays, so lyrical. It's, it's, I'm not the first person to point this out, but every great playwright at some point in their career will take a stab at the back eye by Euripides. And this is Tennessee Williams' back eye. There is a, we got the Blue Jay up, I'll say it. A character does get ripped to shreds, limb from limb, by a, an, a mob. And that, and that mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I, again, not the first person to point this out, that this is an image that he's playing with here. And I think what's so striking about it is, much like the traditions of ancient Greek theater, we do have... We don't need to stage it. The movie version, which I haven't seen in its entirety, but I've seen clips of. Also, it was featured prominently in the documentary The Celluloid Closet about the history of queer cinema. But the, the as I understand the movie, they cut to like flashbacks of what happened and you see it as much as, you know, Hayes Code era Hollywood would allow you to see it. But right. just having somebody under the influence of a literal in vino veritas, they have to tell the truth just speak this beautiful poetry in a story about a poet trying to see the face of God in the blood of sea turtles. Yeah. Like, it's, it just gets under your skin. I was unnerved when I read this for the first time as a teenager. And it doesn't disappoint seeing it this much later in the mouths of brilliant yeah. actors doing brilliant, it justice. Yeah. All you need is storytelling. Like, yeah. people say, show, don't tell. And that's true to a point. But Sometimes telling can be just as evocative, just as powerful in the hands of very skilled actors and a very, very skilled poet, not just a playwright, but a poet. Yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, let's end it there. We're right, like, let's praise it. Tennessee Williams. <laughs> praise this cast. Definitely get out, folks. Again, it only runs until August 13th. And I know some of their shows are sold out, if not selling very fast. So you're definitely going to want to jump on tickets. So again, this is Riot King's Suddenly Last Summer by Tennessee Williams. It is directed by the brilliant Kathleen Welch, which Kathleen, we didn't give you a lot of airtime, but like we talked about all the elements that you have sewed together as a masterful director. Clapping, clapping. You're amazing. Yes. So this is happening August 9th, 13th at Sorry Studios here in Toronto. Get your tickets, friends. This is what you want to see this weekend. Absolutely. And on that note, um, as per usual, just some handles before we kind of sign out. So if folks want to follow me, my artist account is Jillian.Robinson96. You can keep up with any adventures I have coming up down the way. And as always, Ryan, I'm going to ask you to say where we, people can follow you because yeah. it's where they can follow us. <laughs> yeah, well, no need to follow me personally because I'm not very active on social media. But if you like me and my theater thoughts, they all exist on Cup of Hemlock Theater. That's at COH Theater on Instagram, Facebook, and X, I suppose it's called now. We are Cup of Hemlock Theater on YouTube, which is maybe where you're watching this. We are the Cup of Hemlock Theater podcast on the podcast places where maybe you're listening to this. Like, share, subscribe, follow. You've been on the internet. You know how it all works. Yes, indeed. And on that note, I'll give you a cheers, Ryan, and cheers, cheers to everyone watching and listening. Stay safe, everyone. Stay hydrated. Stay well. Go see some fantastic art. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.